Hello and welcome. It's the Graveyard, Graveyard Girls, a true crime and mysteries podcast. Yes, so welcome to this week's episode. Now, this one's going to be slightly different because it was a mammoth case for me to write and it would have been a mammoth episode. So I've actually decided to split it into a part one and a part two. Mm-hmm. So this part one is obviously coming out on a Thursday and your part two will be out next Tuesday. So I'll basically... Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna split it in two. So I'll let you know. And then I'll do a, a little bit of a recap at the beginning of next week. Okay. Just so you can catch up. Um or refresh your mind if you like. So basically this case it's I think quite a lot of people will have heard about it and it was put back into my mind after a recent documentary that came out on Netflix. This case is about a plane hijack that happened in nineteen seventy one. Now, it's a very high-profile case over in America. And what caught my attention about it, again, was the mystery that surrounds it and the fact that it's still unsolved. But there's one mystery man in particular. And when I watched this episode, it seems pretty certain that it's this guy and he could, I think, quite possibly be him. But then it also turns into a bit of a weird miscarriage of justice because the guy that makes a documentary about him... I, I don't know, I feel like he gets an obsession over this guy and he... He's got it wrong. Okay. I know what you're on about, but I this part, don't. I'm, I don't. Yeah. No. So I'm just going to start about telling you the actual hijacking. I think it's probably just, the, just, I'll dive into it. Okay. So on November the 24th, 1971, the Northwest Orient Airline flight 300, is it 305 rather than 305? 305. Uh, was traveling from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. A hijacker demanded a total of $200,000 as a ransom, asked to be flown to Mexico City, and then would parachute out of the plane over southwestern Washington. Also, that route is so small. It is. You don't need to catch a flight for that. You can drive. Are they just lazy? It's quick. It's quick. You say that, but I have actually got a plane to Scotland before when we had a wedding. I really want to go to Portland, so I kind of know this area. Okay. What, are you planning on hijacking a plane? Mm, no. Okay, it's fine. That's just sounded a bit suspicious. <laughs> kind of sounded like you were in Sasha. Could mm. you demand a bit more than 200,000 though, maybe? And then we'll split it. Okay. I'll help you execute it, it's fine. Okay. Oh no, not if this guy disappears. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll make a better plan, it's fine. There's some theories. He's impaled by a tree. There's a lot of strange mm-hmm. theories about this, which is why it becomes such a massive thing. So, basically, in terms of what happened on the plane, no one on the plane was injured. In fact, the other passengers were actually unaware the plane had even been hijacked until they were forced to land and then escorted off the plane, which I think was quite good on the air stewardess's part and the pilots and stuff that no one was really panicked. But the thing is, I didn't know this until this story, but so many hijackings happened back in the 70s that yeah, it was common it was a normal yeah. thing but it's like to me you know airport security yeah. I thought there was always a level of it it was just upped after no. 9-11 no was it 9-11 yeah 9-11 yeah. everything changed since 9-11 yeah everyone who thinks hijacking you think 9-11 yeah not anything like this yeah I had absolutely no idea like I, f- I figured there might have been one or two but like I didn't think it was anything serious if that makes it sense it was so constant that I think they always went to Cuba right yeah it's so constant yeah it's very strange so on the actual flight now the boarding 
A middle-aged man carrying a black case approached a... A poached... A poached... A middle-aged man carrying a black case approached the flight counter at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper. Then the media misprinted (laughs) this as D.B. Cooper. Which is where the name of the case comes from. It's so weird. Like, how do you get confused with Dan and D.B.? I don't know. People are just stupid. D.B. sounds cooler. I think it does a little yeah. bit. Fair. Maybe that's why the media just continue to roll with it. But I think that also in itself, it's confusing. It then adds another air of mystery because they've already got it wrong. So they're looking for the wrong thing. Yeah, because I've always known it as DB. And then what? Well, um, BuzzFeed Unsolved did it. And then they said it was Dan Cooper. And it was just like, really? Mm. Yeah. But I get back to the Dan Cooper thing. Okay. Um, well, actually, you won't hear it till part two. So you'll have to wait till Tuesday for that bit. But I explained the Dan Cooper bit. But he basically, he used cash to pay. He boarded the plane and had people sitting around him. Nothing caused any immediate concern. He was described as wearing a business suit with black tie and white t-shirt. Okay. White shirt, sorry. I don't no, know why I said t-shirt. t-shirt. <laughs> black shirt. I made, I added, I'm adding letters into my sentence. It was claimed he ordered a bourbon and a soda. The plane departed at 2.50pm as, as scheduled. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant. I <laughs> said, shit, no. Why the fuck did I do it say shit? <laughs> I didn't know her last name was that, by the way. Right, okay. We won't be saying the last name now because I've distracted myself. Florence, assuming the note contained a lonely businessman's number, placed it in her purse without opening and reading it. Oh, this yeah. was important at the time because stewardesses had been massively sexualised at the time mm. and were frequently approached by men. So she, I think she just thought, mm-hmm. oh God, another guy. Yeah, she was like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So then Cooper then leaned towards her and said, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. <laughs> which... So subtle. Yeah, I know. And which, but like I said, even though there wasn't a person sat directly next to the very in close proximity, did no one hear that and go, oh, did he just say he's got a bomb? I don't think it's a full flight. I think it's very spaced out from it what... It isn't though, because the other guy, when I watched the interview in this new Netflix one, he yeah. worded it like he was still close enough that you could hear him. Like he was either in the, you know, like the coming seats of three, mm. he was one side and then he's in the next bit. So he's not in the seat directly next to him. So it'd be the sort of distance that me and you are, but sideways, if that makes sense. So he's not directly next to him. So does he say it loud enough so he could hear? No, but he says he doesn't hear it, hear that bit, but he can hear the conversation that guy's saying because he can hear him mutter to her. I have a bomb. He hears him order the drink as normal, but he hears mutter stuff. But I find it weird that he can hear all the other bits he's saying. I'm I'm sure he didn't shout, I have a bomb! But... I feel like it would still be enough you pick up a certain word. He's trying to be discreet. Okay. I just, yeah. I think the rest of the sentence, because he's got a counter attention to go, Miss, you'd better open that. But he says, I have a bomb in the same sentence. It's not like he goes, Miss, you better open that. I have a bomb. It's, do you know what I mean? It's, I feel like he says the whole sentence as a whole. Miss, you better open that. I have a bomb. Yeah. Yeah. And in which case, if you were sat this difference to me, I'd be like, "Uh, did she just say she had a bomb? Okay. Yeah, I was like, it's a bath bomb. <laughs> I don't think they had bath bombs. I don't even right. right. The note was, the note that was written was neat, all in capitals, with a felt tip pen, which I found was a bit felt strange. Felt tip pen? But I also imagine, is it more like a black marker, so it's just a thick pen? Like a Sharpie. Yeah, okay. that's what I'm imagining in my head. According- I'm just imagine 
like a tourist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in like bright red or something. Oh well, yeah, it's like danger red. Yeah. Yeah. Or we did it like um you know like ransom, like you know when people used to yeah. cut out letters from newspapers and stick it yeah. to the thing. I kind of that's what I imagine in my head. According to Florence, the note ordered her to sit in the seat beside him. She and she when she did, she asked to see the bomb. Cooper apparently did this just long enough for her to see eight red cylinders and a large cylindrical battery. So after closing the briefcase like dynamite? No, it's like a battery bomb, isn't it? Okay. I'm just thinking dynamite. <laughs> I mean, I suppose, yeah, it does. I'm imagining more, you know, the big batteries, the yeah. big round ones that you get. Mm. That's what I'm thinking with just little cables coming out, like like crocodile clips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how bombs work. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't make bombs, so I'm not entirely sure, I'll be honest. Which is probably a good thing, I think, that I don't make bombs. Yes. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands of wanting 200000 in a negotiable American currency. Now, this is important to remember for much later on because people kind of make some theories around this. Now, he also wanted four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck to be standing at the Seattle airport ready to quickly refuel their aircraft so it could take off again quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Florence then went to the cockpit to relay the information to the pilots. It said that when she returned, Cooper was now wearing glasses. Which, to me, just makes him look more suspicious to the people around him. Why has he suddenly put glasses on? Sunglasses? Yeah, like black shades. Do oh. you, you see what I mean? Like, if he had them on the whole time... I mean, it's still weird, but no, it's, it's less weird. Move. Yeah. It's like, who wears sunglasses inside? But it, I almost feel like as he whispered the bomb thing and he thinks people might be looking at him, so he's like, I'll cover my eyes so they... Can't see what I look like. But I'd be now more you discreet. look more suspicious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, weirdo. But yes, the captain, a William A. Scott, contacted Seattle Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which informed the local and fed- federal authorities. The other 35 passengers were told there would be a delay at Seattle because of a minor technical difficulty. There's a bomb on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't think they'll put that through the tannoy. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, if you mind the def- uh, technical difficulties, don't worry, the plane hasn't blown up or anything, and like, there's definitely not a bomb, we just need to land. <laughs> now, the Northwest uh, Orient President, Donald Nyrep, authorised the payments and ordered the employees to comply with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI to sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and mobilise the emergency uh, personnel. Another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain, as at one point he'd remarked, looks like Tacoma down there. He also correctly mentioned that matured Air Force Base was only 20 minutes drive at that time from the Seattle-Tacoma airport. Florence Schaffner described him as calm, polite and well-spoken, not like the stereotypical criminals that had been hijacking planes at the time. And obviously, as we've already discovered, hijacking was quite a common Mm. thing. But when I first heard this, like I said, I actually heard a documentary about this a few years ago and then I said I kind of... um, I got a bit frustrated with the end of it because it wasn't resolved, but I get back... I mentioned that documentary later on the thing because it relates back... It makes sense to me now why it frustrated me so much, but it didn't at the time. Okay. Yeah, I'll get back onto that later. It's just, I get why they don't want anyone to die, but why are they going through all that effort 
to save all these people just because he claims to have a bomb you see what i mean yeah i think they have to just edge on why don't they just play like chickens like go on then what are you gonna do uh set the bomb off (laughs) yeah but what if he doesn't have a bomb but she's seen one or what she thinks is one it's not like she's not seen anything to her she's pretty certain she's then obviously gone into fire and goes no i did see a battery and everything like he could actually blow us up it's just weird that they i know that they um like trick the money or whatever so like it's traceable but like why give him money in the first place give him fake money but i think he knows i think he checked it Mm. so i don't know it's just i think for them two hundred thousand in the grand scheme of things isn't that much money they could not afford to lose it but if it means it's saving everyone else's life yeah i know two hundred thousand yeah that i'm not having an issue with but like now if we tried to do anything like this we'd be dead see what i mean there's a difference yeah. why they're going through all that but is that because technology is advanced more like the criminals have so much more of an upper hand now than they did before okay yeah maybe things have changed a lot haven't they i'm not saying they they, they, they shouldn't help the uh, victims on board but it's just there's so much effort yeah not, i think now not it's effort. very different yeah. i think it's changed so drastically yeah even whereas from now now we wouldn't accept yeah. any yeah, and Any you'd attack. hope they wouldn't have even made it onto the plane with no. like, I know it does still happen. Of course. But the in comparison to how it used yeah. to happen, but it, basically most things are picked up at the airport. So yeah. it's not really a problem, if that makes sense. No. And I think it's maybe like now, we don't take it because thinking, well, if they had did actually have a bomb, we would have picked it up at security. I suppose there's a bit more of that element now. Mm. So more we don't believe what they're saying because we think it would have been harder for them to get it on board in the first place. Maybe. Just why couldn't they get the money but then the person who is going to take the money onto the plane why can't he be an undercover agent take there was agents there yeah but why don't they go on the plane and take him out on the plane i don't know i think that's that's the one solution you do you don't... i suppose whether they were still looking at the flight crew is just as valuable as the other passengers and they didn't want to risk harming them either so maybe the plan yeah, was to let that. him fly to where he was intended maybe they were hoping he wasn't going to jump off let him fly to where he wanted to go, Mexico City, and then arrest, and him. Then arrest him once he's got off. Okay. Because they can tell the flight crew, yeah, yeah. stay on the plane, or you walk in the opposite direction to him, he's then singled out, yeah. we can shoot him or tackle him, whatever you want to do. Yeah. That way no one, none of the crew or passengers have got injured. Yeah, no, that makes it sound like I don't care about any of these people. <laughs> I do. It's just, why negotiate with essentially a terrorist? Yeah. Which is effectively what it is. Yeah. But yeah, so... He was apparently so polite on the plane that he reassured the flight attendants, paid his drinks tab and requested meals for the flight crew during the stop at the refuelling. So it took okay. a little while to refuel. So when he stopped there, he ordered that people, you know, when they brought the money on, he mm. ordered that he brought them food as well. So because they'd probably been working all day. This wasn't the only flight they'd done. No. So he kind of seems like a he does sort care. of nice. Yeah, he does care. Yeah. He kind of sounds a bit nice. But he's also, which when we go later into the theories, it's more... Um, suppose it's a means to the end he's trying to be kind to them but this is the only way he could get money fast yeah and this then brings them back onto tina mucklow she asked cooper if he had a grudge with northwest orient and cooper replied i don't have a grudge against your airline airline miss i just have a grudge which when you get into suspects later this is why some of the suspects came about and i'll explain their backstory so it explained kind of why they want to do the hijacking but they don't have anything personal towards the crew or the people which also suggests to me why they haven't injured any of them and have allowed them to land and get off the plane okay i'm hoping the bomb is fake because then he's kind of like not a good guy 
but like he's just clearly doing this because he needs money. Yeah, it's like, it's just, it's all threat. It's all talk. Yeah. So for the ransom money, uh, there was ten thousand unmarked twenty dollar bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L. A photograph was taken of them all, so that later on, if any money was found, they could identify it. It was also said that Cooper rejected military-issued parachutes offered by the uh, McCord personnel. Instead of asking for four civilian parachutes with manual, instead of instead of four civilian parachutes with manually operated rip cords, police obtained them um, from a local skydiving school. Now, after the there was a thing later about this, and they were saying by um, him also one in four. It was a case he wanted multiple. One, they couldn't have tampered with them all, but it also suggested he was going to take a hostage. Therefore, the oh. police wouldn't give him dodgy ones mm. because if he was going to take a hostage, they had to do everything to preserve the life of the hostages. Yeah. So he wasn't saying he was going to take a hostage, mm. but... It's presumed. Yeah, because mm. if he wants four, why does he want four? Do you see what I mean? So they, they can't give him dud ones because... Then well, they how, risk the lives of the other people. Well, how heavy was the bag of money? Maybe one was for the money, but then you've got to try and fi- follow it in the wind. Yeah, the I think he's holding on to the case. But I think in terms of the actual parachutes, the reason I think yeah. people are speculating he did is that as a decoy to suggest he was going to take hostage. Yeah. And therefore that prevented them from giving him shitty ones. It's a good plan. It is a good plan if, that's, if that was the case. Now, after the passengers had been released, the plane took off again at approximately 7.40pm. The plane had Cooper, Tina Mucklow, Captain Scott, uh, First Officer Ritauzak, Ratazak? Ratazak. First Officer Rakazak. (laughs) I can't even say that. We're going with this now and flight engineer Harold E. Anderson. Two fighter aircraft followed behind the airliner, but out of Cooper's view. So this, for me, later on, brings up the question mm. of why didn't they properly yeah. wear his under? I know it is November, I suppose before 7.40 in the evening, it is dark, but you would have thought they would have had some sort of technology on the plane that could track, you know, like, you know if a plane's come in the area, like, it pops up as a little dot on the radar, I would have presumed it would have been the same for a person, like, it's something that could hit the plane. I've never heard of the this these being tailed. Why didn't they see him jump from the plane? There's, I think I'll get onto this in a bit. Because it's it's a slightly different plane, isn't it? Because the stairs come out the back. Yeah. Which is not normal. So you'd see the lights if you're in the plane behind. Yeah. So why don't they see any of that? I think I'll get onto this in a minute. Okay. At approximately eight p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aircraft air stairs apparatus had been activated the pilots asked over intercom if cooper needed any assistance he replied on the cabin phone no this were his last words heard were the last words heard by cooper at approximately 8 13 p.m the aircraft tail sustained a sudden upward movement mm-hmm. this so was this when he jumped jumped yeah when the plane landed the captain checked the plane and confirmed hold on is his like no like a no <laughs> no, I think it no, because then he'd have to take the phone out the stairs with him, wouldn't he? It's oh, like, I yeah. imagine it's one on a cord. Remember, oh, it's yeah. not. It's not like what I'm thinking. Yeah, yet. I was just imagining he got sucked out of the plane. <laughs> maybe, maybe he did. <gasps> the captain checked the plane and confirmed that Cooper uh, was no longer on board. Uh, the FBI bomb squad 
then entered, did a sweep and confirmed the cabin was clean. I'm sure I wrote about this plane. Maybe it's in the bit with the FBI a bit further down. I know I did look at it. I know I mentioned it somewhere. Okay. Um, If I remember correctly, I might be saying this wrong, and if I get onto it later, then basically I'll correct myself. I think they were tailing behind, and then I'm not sure whether it's cloud or something, because these fighter jets, they either got lost a bit in the cloud, because there were one above and one slightly below, but to the side, if that makes sense. Okay. So that when Cooper looked out the window, he couldn't directly see them. Mm. And I think what happened is where Cooper happened to jump out, not only was it dark, but I want to say that it was so cloudy that they sort of got lost in the cloud, so they temporarily lost the plane below them. Okay. So they couldn't, they were saying it wouldn't, and him as a person wasn't big enough to set something off on their radar i don't think like by the time he jumped and they come out the thick cloud i think it was a like not maybe a minute but even 30 seconds by the t- the rate at which he would have dropped they yeah. would have missed it if they'd gone through a cloud i want to say that's what it was i don't think i'm making it i'm pretty certain that's what it was when i first started it i'm sure okay. i mentioned it in here somewhere right anyway the initial investigation FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints from the airliner. They also found Cooper's clip-on black tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes. A clip-on. Clip-on. Black tie. Yeah. I can't even tie. Tie, tie. But, I'm thinking if he's thinking about jumping off, like, that would be a hazard. Mm. So he needs to quickly do it. You don't want him fanny about. True. You know, initial presentation, clip-on tie, if you do it well enough, it still looks like an actual tie. But then you can quickly get rid of it. So way to quickly change your identity, I think. Yeah. It just doesn't sound cool. No, it doesn't. It sounds weird. Clip on tie. He's got glasses. He's got velcro shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, yeah, two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two lines cut from the canopy. So some people were saying, one, was he initially checking them or were they the spare ones and he didn't need them? But did he initially cut them to see whether they'd tampered with them? Someone else then said, because two of the lines had been cut, did he use that to tie maybe the suitcase and stuff like secure... Okay. Something to the other parachutes. Mm. But obviously we can't explain that, so it's just theories that are thrown out there at this point. So authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle and Reno, and a series of composite sketches were developed. A precise location of where Cooper landed was hard to determine due to differences in the plane speed and environmental conditions along the flight's path. This meant they couldn't define a specific search area. Another important variable was the length of the time Cooper uh, freefalled before pulling his ripcord. So did he do it straight away or did he freefall for so long and then pull it? You wouldn't pull it straight away, otherwise you get stuck in the plane. So none of the other Air Force pilots trailing the airliner saw anyone exit the plane either visually or on radar. Mm. Okay. They were experimental uh, recreations with teams throwing a 200-pound sled out of an open stairway and were able to recreate an upward uh, tail motion that had been detected on board. So they managed to mimic what was happening on board, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean... Obviously, the sled can't pull its ripcord, so... No. That In terms of landing, it's a very different... I don't know, it's a weird one, isn't it? I feel like they should have sent... I suppose they can't send another person because the chances of the survival aren't very good, are they? Um, if they've got a parachute, yeah. It's not... I th- It was still where they were falling out a lot of these places. It was still high death risk. So... Um, it's mountainous areas or water. So if you're basically volunteering someone to die, it, I suppose it depends on which area you want to believe when they're coming up. But basically... But they don't have to do it in the same area. They're just testing the theory that that movement uh, yeah, is him jumping. Yeah, but then it's still not a fair trial in terms of an experiment because you're not mimicking the conditions. Because mm. they're trying to find out where yeah. he could have landed. So 
initial possible landing zones within an area of the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin and artificial lakes formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Searches happened there both on foot and in the air. No equipment or no bodies were discovered. In the spring of 1972, a submarine was used to search Lake Merwin. Again, nothing of importance surfaced. Mm. So they were struggling to pinpoint. Obviously, they can't check every square metre of the thing, but where they felt it was most likely for him to have come out, they couldn't find anything. So then there was also a search for the ransom money, because they know what the serial numbers are, um, and they're hoping it's going to circulate back into normal currency. So the FBI... uh, distributed serial numbers to banks casinos racetracks and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions and even sent other law enforcement agencies around the world these um serial numbers twenty five thousand dollars was offered as a reward for anyone who found the ransom money in 1972 the serial numbers were released to the general public but this brought in a lot of hoax and counterfeit notes so this Mm. is why they didn't initially release them um, no genuine bills were found or handed in. However, on February the 10th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingham was on holiday with his family on the Columbia River. They recovered three packets of ransom cash, totaling around $5,800. Notes had degraded and disintegrated in places from exposure to the elements, but were still bundled in rubber bands. And I'll come back to Brian later, because he ties in with one of the suspects. As a child. <laughs> no, this is why it was good, and this is what really threw me out of the documentary, this newer one. I, 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 I don't want to spoil it, so... Okay. Um, next, I'll go on to the other physical evidence. Now, there was three major pieces of evidence that were found on the plane. So, obviously, the black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl clip, and eight filter-tipped rally cigarette butts, um, but they were later lost, the cigarette butts but obviously that would have contained possibly a dna profile yeah so quite important also worth noting that for much later on as well it won't be more in part two but for me it's all in one day oh so, you mean like the fbi is in uh, on it sort of um you can't lose things with dna yeah no it, it, it happens so many times and it's just mm. like someone's like oh we don't need that. It's not important. Like, uh, what was my case the other week? Uh, my reasonable doubt with that uh, handkerchief, bloodstained oh. handkerchief. Oh, we don't need that. No, it's right next to, to the body. It's fun. Anyway, so now um, we're looking into the evidence of knowledge and planning. Evidence suggested that Cooper had to have had knowledge about flying technique, aircraft, and the local terrain, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. He demanded four parachutes, which at the time could have indicated he was planning to take a hostage, as I previously said, but others suggested he did this as a bluff to ensure he wouldn't be given a dud or sabotaged one. Yeah. Which, again, makes sense. He had He must have had knowledge of a quick refueling time at placements of engines as to secure a safe jump away from the engines. Knowledge that the air says could be lowered during the flight and that the plane could fly at a lower altitude. There was previous mention that the pri- the pilot had said he couldn't fly that low, but Cooper had said he knew that they could. So that would suggest that he already had some maybe pilot experience. Yeah, or he worked building them. He yeah. had something to do with airplanes or airlines. Yeah. yeah. So it was suggested that Cooper was an Air Force veteran, an aircraft cargo loader, 
or an aircraft aircraft cargo loader to be precise. Such a job would have given him knowledge and experience of aviation, the aviation field. Loaders are trained to throw cargo out of plane, uh, out of flying aircraft. They wear emergency parachutes and receive jump training. So, well, I've never heard that theory before. That's a good yeah. theory. So it said that Cooper didn't want a military airplane, and this is because they can be tracked and traced. Now, someone that had worked in that area would know that. So this was the things being put forward okay so this then brings me on to the possible fate of cooper the fbi was skeptical of cooper's survival odds they counteracted suggestions of him being experienced and suggest that he was in fact the opposite no experienced parachuter would choose to jump in the pitch black of the night in the rain with an estimated estimated wind speed of 172 miles per hour Mm. wearing loafers and a trench coat so this then does if you want to be funny about that did no one else notice, but he did actually have a change of clothes. Obviously, the pilot and the stewardesses were ordered to stay in the cockpit while he changed and jumped off the plane, so they wouldn't have necessarily seen him change. But then you mm. would have expected the clothes to be left behind, or he threw if them you out. Want to be funny, yeah, he took them with him in the case, accidentally leaving the tie behind. Mm. So he also missed that the reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut. But could that have been cut is what I wanted to question. Because mm. someone talking about, you know, the sabotage earlier. Someone was like, well, he was stupid because he took the but one unless... that was sewn up. But I'm thinking if he already knew, you know how the other ones were cut? Yeah. Did he also check the other one? I feel like he would have checked them thoroughly before he jumped out. Yeah, you're going to have to make sure you get every single stitching of the yeah. sewn part, though. But then if he's experienced of doing things in an emergency. Mm. Okay. It depends what theory you want, how you want to attack it's it. It's like he's really, really clever, but also really, really dumb. Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So he also didn't ask for a helmet or appear to have one, which obviously you would think he kind of had if you're jumping from that height. Mm. So plus, even if he'd landed safely, which was unlikely, how did he survive the mountainous terrain in midwinter? Because even if he lands on the mountain, and mm. I mean, he's going to crash at some considerable speed, even with a parachute. But even if he didn't sustain any broken legs, he's still then got to get through the mountainous terrain. You imagine steep sides, icy. Yeah. How are you getting back down in a suit? No, yeah. Suit, <laughs> he's not going to have loafers. proper. Yeah, he's not got proper shoes. He's not got no. walking shoes. The only other thing you could then throw out there: did he already have someone else meeting him, agree to meet him on the mountainside? But then how can you pinpoint? Exactly yeah, you've got to be accurate where you're landing. So this is why, for a lot of it, people are just saying he's dead mm. because his survival chances were very little. I know uh, BuzzFeed Unsolved's theory is like he's just impaled on a pine tree. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it makes make sense. sense. It makes sense. Um, so now I'm going to go a little bit into the suspects and sort of discuss some of the suspects that they were quite quickly ruled out. Okay. Um, and then I'll end part one and go on to part okay. two. So over 1,000 suspects were considered between 1971 and 2016, which is a lot of suspects. So here are the top ones. Now, the first one was a lady by the name of Barbara Dayton. A woman? Yes. And I'll explain why it gets good. I've never heard of a woman. It's a good one. It'll make sense in a minute. Now, born in 1926, Barbara was a recreational pilot and librarian at the University of Washington. Barbara was actually born Robert Dayton until a gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and became known then is Barbara Dayton. Prior to her gender reassignment, she'd served in the US Merchant Marines and was um, in the Army during World War II, like the back end of World mm. War II. 
Yeah, that's right. After discharge, Barbara worked with explosives in the construction field and aspired to be a professional air- yeah, airline pilot, but could not cre- obtain a commercial pilot's license. Barbara herself claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking two years later, disguised as a man, because she was used to doing that, as she mm-hmm. previously used to be a man, to get back at the airline industry, whose rules and conditions had prevented her from becoming an airline I like, pilot. I like this theory. It's yeah. a good theory. So, And I think it's obviously linked with a lot of, obviously, her gender. Because, mm-hmm. so, yeah, when you said she was a pilot in those times, that's just, like, that's very, like... Um, above her time yeah there's barely so she basically yeah she was a pilot when she was a man and then she obviously wanted a gender reassignment but i think they pretty much told her if she had a gender reassignment she couldn't fly the plane she's clearly qualified yeah she's learned to to, uh it's not drive the plane fly Fly. the plane (laughs) (laughs) she could fly the plane (laughs) before it's not like also she turns into a woman like oh god no i can't remember how to fly the plane anymore so yeah so basically she offered herself up as a suspect now, Barbara claimed the ransom money had been hidden in a cistern near the near Woodburn, uh, Oregon. She would later recant her story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought. She also wasn't a particularly good match for the description, and she died in 2002. Oh, okay. So we can't re-interview her anymore to find out. No. And even if we could, she'd be very old now. Um, <laughs> yeah, 1926. She'd be nearly 100 years old. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Next was an, a man by the name of Joe Lakich. Joe was a retired US Army major and Korean war veteran whose daughter had been killed less than two months before the hijacking during a failed FBI hostage negotiation. Oh. A later suing by Joe and his wife of the FBI would land um, in their favour, holding the FBI responsible for the death after acting negligently during the hostage negotiation. Okay. Joe would become a Cooper suspect due to the revelation that Cooper had contained rare microscopic metallic particles such as pure titanium. Now, this was mm-hmm. on the tie. Mm-hmm. It was speculated that few people during that time would have been exposed to such metals and that Cooper may have worked in a manufacturing environment working with electronics um, or as an engineer or manager. At this point in time, Joe had been working in the, in Nashville as, as a production supervisor at an electronics capacitor factory and would likely have been exposed to the materials found on the tie. If you want to go back to what Tina Mucklow uh, claimed when she said it's not because I have a grudge against your airline, airline sorry, it's because I have a grudge. That's He's a good theory. Paced. That's He's a getting theory. back at the FBI. It's the FBI is demanding the money from. Mm. It's also kind of fucked up that if he, it's not him, the FBI are accusing him because they fucked up in the first place. Yeah. So, so I hope it is him. I don't think it is. It's probably not, but then the FBI shouldn't be accusing him. Yeah. But then they did that anyway. It's easy scapegoat, isn't it? I know, but Jesus. But yeah, many believed his grudge was towards the FBI and their failed efforts to save his daughter. It makes sense. But obviously no one could prove anything, so ultimately he wasn't charged. Okay. But that's a good crime if you can get away with it, but people are like aware you did it, but they can't prove it. That's a yeah. good... Which, yeah, like I said, and here another one by now, he's either dead or he's going to be very old by now, so it's very hard to... <laughs> Because a lot of these, even if you think it's too fraud, they might have dementia now, so they can't really try them because mm. they're not a sound mind. That's the issue. Even if, unless they get DNA evidence. I think also the... Uh, they can't be charged anymore. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, they can't... But they could still send the tri- They could still answer it. Like, they'd still take them to trial mm. and could prove that it's him 
in terms of like with the DNA and put mm. that forward, but they can't charge him. So he would basically... Is it trial they Yeah, their trial, and, but he wants to have any time. So the next was John Emile List. John was an accountant and war veteran who murdered his wife three te- and three teenage children, as well as his 85-year-old mother oh, in Westfield, hell. New Jersey, just 15 days before the Cooper hijacking. He withdrew 200000 from the mother's bank account and disappeared. He came to the attention of the Cooper Task Force due to the timing of his disappearance. Multiple matches to the hijacker's description and the reason- reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose. So they're saying he'd go and do okay. the hijacking. One, for extra money, and two, he's got nothing to lose. If he dies, it's fine. He's already on the run, and yeah. if he gets caught, he's going to go to prison. He could possibly get the death penalty. Okay, but what... <laughs> The exact amount of money is weird. Why would They're you saying get it? that he also wanted two hundred thousand. It matched with his previous two hundred thousand. Yeah. Like it's the same. It's, it's a, a reach that it's the same amount. It's a reach. Yeah, yeah basically, which <laughs> yeah. is why ultimately he's ruled out. Yeah. <laughs> so after his capture in eight uh, nineteen eighty nine, which uh, so basically he spent eighteen years on the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, John uh, denied any involvement and no substantial evidence implicates him so the FBI do no longer consider him a suspect but you've got to think at the time it was for them he was quite a strong yeah. possibility if that makes okay. sense so next was Richard uh, McCoy Jr Richard was an army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam first a demolition expert and later a helicopter pilot so he's got with explosives and i know a helicopter is different from a plane but it's still a pilot after in the air (laughs) yeah after his military service he became a warrant officer with the utah national guard and enjoyed skydiving in his own time again he now knows how to parachute Mm. on april the 7th 1972 mccoy staged the best known so-called copycat hijackings when he boarded a unit United Airlines Flight 855 in Denver, Colorado, brandishing what later proved to be a paperweight resembling a hand, gren- hand grenade, as well as unloading a handgun. He also de- he also demanded four parachutes, but this time it was $500,000. After delivery of the money and parachutes a San Francisco in- at San Francisco International Airport, McCoy ordered the aircraft to go back into the sky and bail out over Provo, Utah. So similar circumstances mm. to the one before, just slightly different place. This is why you don't take ran- you don't do the ransom thing because then the ke- people keep thinking they can get away with yeah. it. This is the issue I have with them, like giving him the money. That's the only issue yeah. I have. I don't have the it's, issue yeah, of like helping the victim, not encouraging them, but it is no, at the same but time. But it is. So yeah, so he left behind a handwritten hijack. He accidentally left behind handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine he'd been reading. He was arrested on April the 9th with a ransom cash in his possession and after a trial and conviction, he received a 45-year sentence. Two years later, he escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. You would have thought they'd have made it a little bit hard. Like, I know a garbage truck is big, but I feel like yeah. they should have had multiple gates and maybe one of them stop him. He was tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach and where he was killed in a shootout with FBI agents. So they can no longer question him. Very clever of them. In the or 1991... Was it done on purpose? Well, yeah, to stop him from possibly hijacking another plane, I was thinking. Mm, yeah, never mind. I don't know what I was going with. <laughs> 
In the 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, a parole officer at Bernie Rhodes and a former FBI agent, Russell Kalam, asserted that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities between the hijackings. Claims by McCoy's family that the tie and mother of Paul uh, Clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy. So this is from the original hijacking. A proponent for their claim was that the FBI agent who shot and killed McCoy said, when I shot Richard McCoy, um, he said, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. Okay. However, the FBI no longer considers him a suspect in the Cooper case because of mismatches and agent description, as well as credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of the Portland hijacking and at home in Utah the following day, having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. So, obviously... He couldn't. Oh, yeah. Um, I forgot it's Thanksgiving. So just whoever's dad was missing on Thanksgiving, just... <laughs> yeah, and put came, them forward. Yeah. And who came back with $200,000, just, well, 200, no, it's a little bit less because they found, what, 5,000? Yeah. It's so, him. Yeah. So this is the end of part one. Okay. So these are obviously some of the suspects that they've effectively ruled out. And to be fair, that kind of makes sense to me because... They were the most plausible at the time that the police seriously considered at the mm. beginning, but also feel like it wasn't any of them. I don't think they're plausible enough. I think at the time of what they had, mm. I, I think they saw them as good suspects. And like all of them, there's, they would have the experience or could have the experience. So I understand why they cropped up as suspects. And I also like Barbara. She sounds a bit badass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought she was a good one to include, but there was a hell of a lot and it's really, really difficult to get through them. But I want to leave it here because my next two suspects are really, really good ones. So well, these you'll have last to... ones have been really good. So yeah, so you'll have to come back on Tuesday for part two. <gasps> I'm yes. excited. So yeah, in the meantime, keep creeping and we'll keep digging. Ooh.